The Force is strong in my family. My father has it, I have it, my sister has it, and you have that power too. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that this is the year 10191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam V, my father. And this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The spacing guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space, that is, to travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe, a desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Freemen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Tantooine, also known as Doom. A storm is coming, our storm, and when it arrives, it will shake the universe. Chewie, we're home. Oh, just kidding. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of Thinkbook Radio and thethinkbook.com. We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Think42 and at Thinkbook. It's the 21st day of April, and though Socrates said, to be is to do, and later Jean-Paul Satire countered with, to do is to be, all I've got to say today is, dooby-dooby-doo. Actually, that's interesting considering. Hello, Doug here. And last week, I completely flubbed a word in our introduction with Michael Allen on tax day. Assiduous. It's an adjective that means showing great care and perseverance. Used in a sentence, the Fremen were assiduous in their behavior towards the conservation of water due to the scarcity of it on Arrakis, the product thus being the still suit. Assiduous, interestingly, has its origin from a 16th century Latin root, which stems from the act of being engaged in doing. It is interesting because later in that same show, Will brought up ontology, a word that always bedevils me, but which everyone knows is a branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. And what does that have to do with today? Well, maybe it has something to do with when a story of doing transcends its time and place and becomes a template for being. Perhaps it's the difference between fiction and myth, and in this case, our guest today can definitely shed some light on the idea of mythology and pop consciousness. This morning, we have the pleasure of spending 42 minutes with writer Daniel D. Schneider. I found him by way of his article in The Atlantic last spring about David Lynch's film version of Doom. Mr. Schneider is a proud glasses wearer, formerly of Outside Magazine, occasionally found at The Atlantic, and sometimes yelled at on metal injection. Although I wasn't aware until we asked him to come on the show, his writing and perspective offers a look at that space between the nature of doing and being between fiction and myth. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. So what prompted you to write your article, The Messy, Misunderstood Glory of David Lynch's Dune, last year? Um, well, the, the 
documentary was coming out on um, Ron Jaworski's aborted attempt uh, to create a 10-hour version uh, of the same movie uh, or of the book. And, um, you know, it's not a movie that people remember fondly, but I had watched it a number of times uh, when I was younger, and I actually found it to be, uh, I guess, a, a really visceral experience. You know, I, I found it to be very challenging mentally at a young age. And uh, and I think that that aspect of it holds up into adulthood. And uh, that was just something I wanted to share with other people. Yeah. I mean, you you reminded me about the things that I really liked about it. That, that David Lynch did a wonderful job of realizing that world for sure. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that struck me, I mean, when I read the book um, in college, um, you know, I'd actually seen the movie a few times um, before I ever read the book. Uh, so when, when I did finally read the book, one of the things that really uh, stood out to me was how alien the world felt. You know, these people, these are human beings, but they don't sound human and they don't, um, you know, their actions aren't familiar in any way. And uh, the same goes for the language that they're using. There's nothing comforting or warm about it. It feels like a world like where you wouldn't survive. It would be like stepping into an, an alien planet with no atmosphere, with no suit. You know, it just seemed like it was completely uh, hostile in a way. Um, which is the exact opposite of a lot of more popular science fiction where, you know, you fantasize about fitting in with, you know, the, you know, casting crew of various spaceships, you know, Millennium Falcons or Starship Enterprise or whatever. It, it seems like a generally comforting and friendly place. Um, but Dune always seems very alien, um, even the people. And I think that the movie does a good job of, of translating that. It's not friendly or recognizable in any way and everything seems kind of strangely off and it makes sense because you know 10,000 years in the future the world you know won't be recognizable in that way um, and that's sort of one of the great misconceptions about science fiction that you see everywhere is that you know it'll generally be recognizable they say you know this future world um, but that's just not true and you know for commercial purposes obviously it's, uh, you know, it serves them to show us a more familiar world. But, the, you know, this, I think, is actually a more accurate representation of what we might see. It's just something completely bizarre that is almost impossible to interpret, despite the fact that things walking around have two arms, two legs, and ten fingers and toes. Well, so the, the interesting thing for me in my own development is that I think I came into contact with the idea of archetypes by looking at Dune when I did somewhere in my early 20s. So I was I was watching movies and then keeping like a, a review journal. And I started realizing that a lot of movies, basically, if you boiled it down to one plot sentence, had a really similar plot. You know, the idea of the chosen one redeems his mm -hmm. people. And then I thought, well, of course, George Lucas must have ripped off Dune. Do you know anything about that? about those similarities or do you think it's just purely coincidence? Um, I think it's probably more co uh, coincidence. Um, you know, I think that that's just such a common theme throughout, you know, human stories for, you know, two millennia <laughs> of our existence. I think it's just, it's just hard to, um, 
It's just one of those things that's hard to avoid. I mean, it's it's almost, I don't want to say it's a trap because that sort of implies it's negative, but I think that, um, I think it's it's almost inevitable, if, if that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, people search for these figures who will, you know, come and save them, you know, whether that's God or Jesus or any other prophet or UFOs. <laughs> You know, there, there's just that, there's that desire for a parent figure of some kind, you know, a shepherd. And then as far as, like, Star Wars goes, I think George Lucas was, he was more inspired by... Campbell. Or black and white stuff. So the Watchers is probably why Tatooine is Tatooine, is because it's Monument Valley. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, Star Wars is very familiar. Um Star Wars is a very comfortable environment. Um, and even the aliens feel, you know, relatively human, you know. Um, I mean, especially compared to Dune. I mean, you sort of can understand R2-D2, you know, through... I mean, and that's the magic of, you know, what they did with a lot of the animatronics and the, and sort of the voice and body work that they did with these characters. But, you know, they're actually quite you know, everything in there is actually quite familiar. It's just kind of, it has like an old West vibe to it. You know, there's the saloon and the, and you know, the saloon and the <clears throat> quick draw gunfight in the bar, you know? Yeah. Right. We're Han shot first, just to be clear. Right. Of course. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that it's a difference in storytelling. I often think of individuals like Lucas and Spielberg I mean, they give you night rainbows and sunshine and and everything works out on the end. And people like Lynch and Kubrick don't do that. It's almost like it's almost like, you know, uh, Lucas Spielberg or popcorn fodder for kids and Lynch and Kubrick are for for adults. Do you know what I mean? That make you think a little Mm -hmm. bit harder and they don't just give you everything on a platter. Would you agree with that? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I don't think there's any less artistry to one or the other, you know, in, in terms of approach. I mean, I think it's a, it's a challenge to do either to connect universally successfully. You know, I mean, anybody could sort of try to make either one and, you know, fail miserably. Um, you know, just because a formula is identifiable, it doesn't make it uh, easy to synthesize. Um, you know, but it, it, I think it's just a different approach. But but I think that you're right. I mean, there's a kind of, you know, uh, with Kubrick or Lynch, you know, they want to experiment, basically, I think. Um, they want to add a lot of layers and have their works be something that people examine for, people come back to to, understand, uh, to gain a deeper understanding of and not to revel in nostalgia, you know, which you might do going back to watch E.T. or something like that. I mean, you're not going back to gain a deeper understanding. It's more an issue of comfort. Um, whereas if I, you know, watched Dune 10 times, I'm probably, or, you know, 2001 or The Shining or something like that. Those are movies that people have been analyzing for, you know, uh, for decades, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's more about, um, they're, they're more like research projects than they are, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of comfort films, if that makes any sense. To return to my idea of the, the, you know, this this idea of the archetype in my journal, another thing that I discovered at the same time was Neo, 
And mm-hmm. to bring this for full circle, I discovered your article because someone was reviewing Jupiter Rising, saying mm-hmm. that it was more like Dune than Star Wars. Did you happen to mm-hmm. see Jupiter Rising? Um, no, I didn't get to see it, I'm afraid. It, it's a, another Wachowski Brothers film. Mm-hmm. And, right, right. I read all about it. Yeah. I, I... And <laughs> I like their work. I mean, no one's making anything like them. And I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to be. So, like, they had a big deal after the, the success of the Matrix, and I have a feeling that maybe their funding is after their their distribute or their deal with Warner Brothers is done, then they might not be able to make these extremely big budget things because they don't seem to do very well. But I wonder if they're. It's it's hard to that space between capturing people's imagination and. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jodorowsky, the, his problem where there was something about Dune that spoke to him on like a super deep spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Right. I, well, you know, I think with the, um, with the Wachowskis, I think that, I don't think that they're done entirely. I actually think that they're sort of the victims of, um, bad timing in a way. Um, you know, I think actually that the space for them if you just shifted every, if you shifted them five years into the future, you know, I think that there would be a much more welcoming space for them because you see sort of science fiction and comic book films and this kind of like geek realm growing really rapidly. Um, and I think if like in the future, I think the future would have been a much more welcoming place for them. I think, you know, if Jupiter Rising came out, two years from now, I think it might have done even, you know, it might have done better. You know, I think that the, the environment for them, for that kind of film is actually growing and, and not shrinking. I think that they've just sort of been a bit ahead of their time. Yeah, I, I really liked Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I don't know, there, the, the thing with that is there's these multiple threads all happening. And mm-hmm. I think if you tried to keep track of it, like consciously tried, that would make somebody grouchy, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you just let the stories just kind of wash over you, that it, it's it's kind of a, a fun experience. Yeah, definitely. That it comes together at the end, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I and mean, there's something to be said for a kind of unconscious film experience. Um, but, you know, that's not the way that people digest movies now. I mean, we want to, I mean, we can't take anything at face value. Everything is, you know, analyzed down to its, you know, you know, down to its roots, um, you know, by reviewers and, you know, on, in sort of the bubble of uh, internet commentary, you know, everything has to be broken down. And a movie like that can be very frustrating for people who, I guess, want to absorb things in that way. You know, but some movies, I think, like that one, are just better left, you know, to are, are better when you sort of absorb them almost unconsciously. Well, last last fall, you wrote about the difference between black superheroes and white superheroes, mm-hmm. and and what was that main difference that you you noticed in that article? Uh, well, um, I guess I, I took a look back at a lot of the history. Um, I mean, and there isn't a ton of history 
um, to go over in that genre per se, but um, I, I just sort of noticed that whether by function of, you know, budget or, um, you know, by specific design, a lot of these stories were about a hero who, you know, they they say they're 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 protectors of their specific neighborhoods. You know, they're not really they, none of them were given the keys to the planet, so to speak. I mean, um, a lot of them are spoofs as well. You know, they're sort of this the running joke in the whole genre is oh, you know, can you imagine if they actually you know put a black man in charge of the planet? Um, you know. So, the, so they're given stewardship over like their specific neighborhoods and not anything else. Um, you know, they're not our heroes; they're their heroes. You know, they're heroes for the other and for someone else. Um, and that's still something that we haven't really seen. I mean, even Blade. You know, in in his first movie, he is technically saving the world. He's, you know, stopping Stephen Dorff from becoming Lamagra, the Blood God. Um, who will, you know, cleanse the world. But the movie doesn't feel like he's saving the world at any point. And this is one of the things, I mean, that's actually, it's hard to describe in writing, but I guess easier to talk about. Um, is that you know, it doesn't see, the, the tone of the movie doesn't feel like he's saving the world. It just feels like he's sort of cleaning up, he's on a clean up the streets campaign, you know, where vampirism is like a poison. It's like a stand-in for, you know, crack or something like that. And he's just working up his way to, and he, the structure of the movie seems more like these kind of crime revenge thrillers where, you know, somebody was hurt a long time ago by a drug boss or the product that they're slinging. And then, you know, so it's sort of on this quest for revenge that leads him through like, you know, a bunch of thugs and finally up to the big boss at the end, you know, for a show, uh, for a showdown. And it feels a lot more like that. It feels, you know, it feels more like, shaft almost, the way he's driving around in a muscle car with his, you know, black trench coat. He doesn't feel like a superhero at all, and it certainly doesn't feel like he's out to save the world, exactly. It's more like a tale of revenge. Um, you know, that's very sort of localized. You know, it, it all takes place in back alleys and street corners and stuff. I, I bring that up because with this the Star Wars teaser trailer, we just saw the second one, there's been mm-hmm. an emphasis on this Black Stormtrooper, whose name is apparently Finn. And so, right. like a Stormtrooper is definitely every man. And then mm-hmm. by taking that mask off, I'm curious. I wonder, do you have any... Wait, is he a Stormtrooper or is he just dressed like a Stormtrooper? Because I was... Well, under- we don't... <laughs> we don't know. This is... I mean, that's the... That's the you know, that's at the core of speculation, whether he was a Stormtrooper and is has decided to, you know, jump ship after witnessing... Because aren't kind of the stormtroopers still clones, though? I thought that. All no, of them... well, that was a that was one clone army in the prequels, um, but stormtrooper that was I guess so long ago now that I think that army was defeated or dissolved, um, and now he's just and I think they're recruiting from the usual ranks. And are so they on be... Tantooine? I'm like confused because no, it looks like, like Tantooine. I I want to say that that is. But I got like, I could so be many wrong. phone calls afterwards, like because in the in the new trailer, of course, Han and Chewie are at the very end. He's like, "Oh, Chewie, we're home," and my phone right. blew up right afterwards. We're like, wait, Tantooine is Han's home? That doesn't make right. any sense. 
yeah, he doesn't, I, they don't have a home. I mean, they're just, you know, and I don't know, um, yeah, I don't think he, that he has a home. Uh, according to what I read, the, the new planet is actually not Tatooine, but someplace called Jakku, um, where the action takes place. Now, as for the, the stormtrooper, my thinking is that um, it, it seems unlikely to me that someone that he would sign up to be a stormtrooper. I mean, I feel like the Empire's reputation is pretty well established at this point. I don't think there's something that's going to suddenly turn him against the Empire. I think he's probably posing as a stormtrooper to get from one place to another and then has to, you know, I guess jump ship at the appropriate moment. And then it intimates that the Skywalker child is is this girl. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. Is she a product of Han and Leia then, probably? Most likely. I mean, that's. I mean, they're definitely playing on that emotion, <laughs> if nothing else, because um, that's really the only romantic exchange that um, really occurred on the show. I mean, sorry, in the <laughs> in the show in the movies. Um, so, I mean, in the in the last chronologically speaking, I mean, there's you know, Princess, there's Padme and and. Anakin, but you know, I don't think anybody wants to see <laughs> anything to do with their child. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talk about this a lot around these parts, but it's funny to us how back in the day there were these two juggernauts of sci-fi, that being Star Wars and Star Trek, and there was all of these arguments on which one was better and Trekkies against you know Lucas heads or however you would say them. Um, mm-hmm. But now we live in this alternate universe where one man is responsible for both threads. How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? J.J. Abrams has taken over our world. Right. I mean, I don't personally... It's it's kind of hard. It's... You know, there's my, my inner... My sort of inner angry nerd does not like it. You know? <laughs> I mean, if only because you just you're it's it's how you know you're you're running this risk of sort of I mean he's one person you know what I mean and as much as he can appreciate and understand you know both franchises on their own merit you know you're you're going to get this kind of homogenous product you know there will be notable similarities I mean part of the fun of arguing over the two is that they are very different and. You know, I mean, from what you can, from what I can tell from, you know, these trailers is that he certainly has an appreciation of kind of the visual cues of um, of Star Wars, you know, from, you know, like the, the cockpit shots of the X-Wing pilots and, you know, the sounds that everything makes, you know, he, you know, it's, it's a, it's a spot on imitation, you know, but it's still at some point or another, he's going to have to use his own instincts as a filmmaker. And the same goes for Star Trek. You know, he has all the, you know, on the surface, it all appears to be, you know, Star Trek that, you know, but at a certain point, he has to add some of his own input. And his input, you know, is his input. It's the same thing in both franchises. And eventually, more and more of that is going to have to take over to, I guess, substitute you know, you, you can't rely on nostalgia forever. 
You know, if he really wants to make these his own, he has to do something with them at some point that's bold and purely him. And when that happens, you know, you're going to end up with, you know, possibly very similar products that have similar themes and sort of similar visual styles and where everybody's just basically wearing different costumes and that's it, you know, and I don't think that's a good thing. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, the, my practical, <laughs> my practical side, you know, the side that wants to think that, you know, it's a good thing is, says that, you know, here's somebody who clearly has an understanding and appreciation of, of these franchises. And if he's not, and, you know, may hand them off to people he thinks, you know, and just wants to sort of shepherd them into a new era. And, you know, whether that means, you know, having a direct hand in their creation and all the materials that are going to come out uh, or handing them off to the right people, because, you know, that people who like him understand it, that could be a good thing. You know, I mean, franchises are vulnerable things. Hollywood is a dangerous place, (laughs) you know, and (laughs) it could also have been much worse, you know. But then there's this strangeness. I'm not super connected, but then like, apparently there's something called Star Wars Rogue One. Have you guys heard of this? No. It's like a different series that's coming out in 2016 and it's between the space of three and four. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I have heard about that. Um, Is it a cartoon? Just, nothing beyond the name. Um, no, but I mean, um, well, I mean, that makes, you know, it's in some ways the space between the movies has been, you know, a, a spot for like some of the richest sort of side stories and fan fiction. Um, in general, you know, and almost in some ways that's a more natural place for, you know, sort of a fan director, um, what's Gareth Edwards, um, to sort of step in and, and really experiment and take over. I mean, those are the things that flesh out the universe, you know, so that, that sounds really cool to me. You know, I mean, that's in the appeal, a lot of the appeal of Star Wars is how easily it accommodates you know, side stories and um, sort of fan fiction additions to the universe. And if you think of that, if you think of, you know, all these additions as basically that, you know, these fanboys finally getting a chance to just make, you know, what without the millions of dollars would have just been some kind of YouTube fan tribute, you know, <laughs> um, you know, then, then these become, you know, these kind of very human you know, there's kind of a human touch to it. It doesn't seem so suddenly so commercial. <laughs> we know with Disney's acquisition of both Star Wars and Marvel, it seems that they're like um, they're planning for like the next 25 years. They've taken on everything that has been popular over the last few decades, and they're trying to project themselves profit in the next coming decades. Mm-hmm. I mean. But it seems like I don't know. I take a take a comment that Alan Moore made, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something about the fact that right now, you know, superheroes are the big thing. They're the big money maker in the box office and stuff. But these are actually like stories that are twenty some odd years old that were made for the twelve year olds at the time. And if you go to the theaters now, it's a bunch of thirty and forty year olds. It, 
mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of symptomatic of some kind of stagnation. I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, and then, well, and then you got like Poltergeist coming out this year, Jurassic World coming out this year, a reboot of Terminator, Mad Max reboot. I mean, everything's like revisitation of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely hard to not feel, you know, to, to look at the sort of current landscape and not think that, and you know, not feel a little bit worried. Um, you know, but I, I mean, I, I will say also, first of all, just that, I mean, this hasn't completely stopped, you know, the, you know, the, the production of original stories. I mean, these things, you know, original ideas still come out. I mean, they don't do as well. You know, obviously, you know, Jupiter Ascending is a good example, um, you know, because it's not people uh, just on the surface, it, it appears unfamiliar, you know. Um, and I don't think necessarily, though, that, you know, these, these stories, when they reboot, I mean, on the surface, they're using elements from other things to get people into theaters. But most of them, I think, do create original, more or less original stories. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of the, like, the, I think Thor, the Dark World was a pretty good example. I mean, I actually thought that was pretty cool. I actually thought that they sort of moved pretty well outside the comic books and creating something that was, you know, fairly original, um, visually, you know, um, I mean, there's artistry to be had. It's, I don't think it's all, um, I don't think it's all just rehashing. I mean, you do kind of worry that, you know, we're harvesting the mythologies of 20 years ago to create, you know, the mythology now. I mean, you know, comic books like sort of all are the mythology right now, but these are all old stories. You're right. And so you wonder, you know, and if you'll, you won't begin to, you wonder if you won't begin to see the effects of this for another 10 years or so when people sort of go back and say, oh, well, what, what are our mythologies now? You know, what do we have? You know, because we just before, right? And so you worry about that, but on the other hand, you know, myths are generational stories. You know, people pass them down from one generation to the next. I mean, I had a friend, uh, Chris Heller, who works at the Atlantic. He's great. Everyone should read what he writes. Um, you know, talked to me, talked me down about this once when they were rebooting Star uh, Spider-Man again and again. Um, I mean, for, I think for the yeah, it was for the Andrew Garfield edition when, when they were rebooting that. And he says, you know, these things are, these are our modern myths. I mean, these are the people are just like passing cy- from one. Right, Sorry? like cy- cycles of Osiris or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. people are just passing these stories down. I mean, it it definitely feels like, I mean, it's it's, I know it's sort of a stretch in your brain to compare, you know, passing the story of King Arthur or Hercules to, you know, Sony making a reboot of Spider-Man. Because it's they're about the same to lose thing. Their, yeah. Right. Because, yeah, because they're about to lose their production rights. But, it, you know, it it is functionally the same thing. You know, it's, it's a slightly different telling of the same story. And I think it's certainly happening. You know, I'd say, let's say there were, you know, in the first century, you know, there were like 200 years between... <laughs> retellings of Hercules, right? But or something like that. But maybe that's not true. People told them, you know, people told it a different way every week. And just because it's part of a machine, 
you know, because it's part of a larger sort of commercial machine, it feels less organic, you know. Um, but the truth is that I think that it's the same thing, I think. Well, this is the difference between DC and Marvel, isn't it? Um, the difference being what, exactly? Well, I'm just saying, like, DC has, like, deconstructed their universe time and again, and they have a history of, like, whoever is doing the comic book basically puts their stamp on it. So there's, like, a Miller, Batman, so forth and so oh, on. Yeah. But there's, like, mm-hmm. a continuity – well, there was <laughs> – a continuity to Marvel. I mean, how do you feel about the collapse of their universe coming up? Oh, um, in the cinematic universe or in, in comics? Oh, no. The, have you heard about the whole Secret War thing coming they, um, um, the, I'm actually not super. Uh, I'm not a super comic person anymore. I mean, I, I don't know how I used to be, but I. Oh well, I mean the same story. I don't read the. This has been in the news though. I don't really read comics anymore because of the the way that they do things. But I thought that you knew quite a bit about comics and the difference between DC. I mean, I'm basing my question off of you know Peter Parker and Clark Kent being unethical journalists or whatever. Oh right, right, right. <laughs> But I, I, the sil- the Secret War, the Marvel's rewriting it and basically collapsing all of their timelines into a new universe where like Fantastic Four is no longer. And basically, I mean, basically, what they're doing is they're setting up for their future cinematic universe by, you mm-hmm. know, using the comic books as a platform to. And DC, you know, with their like their fifty two universe or whatever, they've already done that. That, mm-hmm. that they get so convoluted with, you know, right. time travel and stuff that they right. have to collapse it down and weed out what they don't need anymore. Have you ever uh, read your Thomas Mallory, Will? I can't say that I have. So he, he's this guy who was in prison. He had a lot of time on his hands. And basically all he did is took every version of King Arthur and put it into one volume. And it's great to read, but when you read it, you realize that at parts, King Arthur's he might be gay, and then at other parts, <laughs> <laughs> at other parts, he's a much different hero. And even though somehow it works that they're, the 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 essence of the hero holds true, even though the guise shifts throughout the volume. It, it's weird how like like this the idea of I'm curious about, uh, Daniel, what you think about these kind of fictions becoming religions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... <laughs> like, the right, way right. Jor- Jordorowski was speaking about Dune, he wanted to create something that was that was bigger than, like, a fiction or a movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I personally have experienced sort of the religious um nature of of dune you know i when i read it i i remember being completely um sort of engrossed in the, the, the there's something about the language and the way that the chapters are prefaced with these kind of like scripture you know um and they really are i mean they're they're about the messiah the first two books you know they're about his sort of rise and then downfall um and there there's definitely a, a very religious nature i mean everything from the desert to the you know, to his ability to see into the future. Um, you know, they, it's easy to become, you know, to sort of start to take these stories and you start to take their lessons to heart and, you know, try to live them a little bit. Um, 
So I can certainly see how it, it happened with Dune. Um, I mean, I think it was, whether that was intentional or not. And what's funny is that a, one of the great lessons of the book is to sort of beware of, you know, these stories and these characters, you know, beware of charismatic figures, you know, but you can't help but you sort of come out of it thinking like, oh, maybe Frank Herbert was the Messiah, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, he's warning you off it. And it's kind of a deeply confusing experience. I mean, especially, you know, I'm not a religious person, um, but I felt more reading that book for the first time, which I did in like one or two days, really just nonstop. Um, you know, that it was, a, it was a more powerful experience for me than anything I encountered in my like sort of brief flirtations of, you know, I guess bona fide religion. Right. Who wrote battlefield earth? That uh, was Herbert. I mean, uh, what's the, yeah, dude, the Scientology guy? Hubbard. Yeah. Yeah. Hubbard. There's a right. weird space. We, someone we like to have on this program is uh, a lady named Victoria Nelson, and she, and she was telling us all about uh, the Twilight religion. That that fan fiction is morphing into that people up in that area are worshiping that, you know, fantasy. The, the Cullen entire family. family. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And this and this happens all the time. I mean, I mean, if you think about like the Necronomicon is basically not a real thing, but it has penetrated and has been remade and is part of movie plots and stuff. But it was actually uh, an, an imaginary thing that was brought by you know what's his name H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. and and things of that nature happen all the time where you know fantasy becomes reality in some weird way because it, it it creates religions like you know Anton LaVey or, or something like that where mm-hmm. after a while it bleeds through to where people actually believe that something like that exists when it was nothing really but fiction mm-hmm. right well I think that I mean it's certainly you know it's a common phenomenon and if anything I think it, it brings more established religions down a peg, you know, and you sort of, you can start to see the roots of those religions or what, or what have you. You know, I think that their age lends them legitimacy more than, than anything else. I mean, if that is from a purely, you know, practical standpoint, I'm not attacking any, the, <laughs> I'm not attacking anyone's faith. I'm, I'm just saying that you, you can begin to see how these things spread, you know, how stories that relate, that people relate to and, and want to believe in and how the, the urge to believe in something, you know, the, the urge to connect with something, um, the urge to connect with a belief system and other people who believe in that system is, is its own, you know, is, is its own machine, regardless of sort of what those beliefs are on the surface, whether that's, you know, the Messiah or, Teenage vampires, you know, there's a, you're just searching for a sort of common meaning with other people. Um, and certainly if you can relate to that more than, um, I think if you can relate to that more than, you know, uh, Moses or what have you, then, you know, it's easy to see how, you know, it's the same function. You're filling the same need inside. Well, crawling out of this religious mucky muck, I mean, uh, the basic question is, what, what, what are you looking forward to this year, as far as 
And what are you working on as well? Well, that was the next question, but. Oh, uh, geez. Well, (laughs) um, I don't know. I mean, well, I, I obviously looking forward to star Wars and, um, and the new Avengers movie uh, as well. Um, I'm very excited to see that. I think that those are, I think that the the Avengers one is, is, is probably the best, uh, sort of almost most human of these, uh, of the current sort of, um, superhero franchises. You know, there, there's something very, you know, all the characters are very flawed and they, they work together very well. And maybe that's just Joss Whedon, but it, it feels, it feels like the old sort of teams that I used to sort of fantasize about being a part of when I was a kid. And, there's definitely um some there. Um but to be honest, you know, I, I don't um I'm not always absorbing new things. I mean, I really like to go back. I mean this is, this applies to all of my sort of cultural interests. I I've always sort of believed in becoming unstuck in time and uh floating around and just finding whatever you can from whenever you can. Um and that applies to music and, and movies and, and books. Um so I mean if you're asking what I'm looking forward to diving into <laughs> in the near future, um, I just picked up the River Run trilogy by S.P. Fontau, which is a very strange um, short trilogy of books about a family, a, a sort of modern American family, well, written in the, in the 80s, um, American family on their way to a cancer clinic in Mexico to save their dying mother when they accidentally step through into another dimension and become involved in the power struggles between um, a bunch of insane dragons uh, with Holy cow. the power to, to warp reality. Like um, Narnia <laughs> with chemo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, that's, and I don't know if you know, it's Pete Somtow. He's, he's actually a classical composer from Thailand who has written a ton <laughs> of books in English um, in the sort of horror and science fiction genres. And there's not a lot about him online, which is strange because he's written a lot of stuff. Um, and this one caught my eye the other day. Um, but anyway, that's what I'm uh, certainly looking into, uh, getting into in the near future. Um, as for stuff I'm working on, um, I'm actually, I've sort of taken a bit of a hiatus from um, culture writing um, to work on some of my own fiction. Um, so you are a fiction my- writer. Oh sure. Well, I mean, I'm I'm going to give it a shot. I haven't published anything yet, but um, but based on my time in New Mexico, um, it's sort of like a, I guess, sort of a old western with magic kind of story. Um, so we'll we'll see how that works out. <laughs> well, great. That was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Oh yeah, no problem. Uh, that was really fun. Uh, thank you guys so much. It has been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, you've been listening to Daniel D. Snyder on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Snyder can be found at theatlantic.com slash Daniel Snyder. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And Father, Father, the sleeper has awakened. Chewbacca. 
Oh, oh, oh. No, Pichakan, who oh, Han Solo.